morning, everyone. It's good to have you join us this morning. I'm not sure if you saw in the news this week, but there was a story about this Deidre Shannon, who was a nurse aide at a middle school in Killeen, Texas. Um, she got reprimanded for putting a display on her door, which uh, was taken after a Charlie Brown Christmas. Uh, you can see, I can get this, this works, you can see the display here. It's hard to read it, but you can see a picture of Linus in the sad-looking Christmas tree from Charlie Brown Christmas. And then there's words on top of Linus. And it was a quote from the cartoon. It says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David, the Savior, which is Christ the Lord. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. When she initially put put it up, the principal of the school told her to take it down because it might offend kids from other religions and those who have no religion. Um, And the school board uh, supported the principal's directive and and asked her to take uh, the display down. Uh, But the Texas Attorney General, uh, Ken Paxton, filed a lawsuit on Shannon's behalf saying the decision misinterpreted or misinterpreted sorry, the state's uh, what are known as the Merry Christmas laws and also violated her rights under the Texas Constitution. The suit claimed quoting a statement from a cartoon character that happens to include portions of a Bible verse is not sufficient to qualify as encouragement to adhere to the Christian religion. And a judge last week ruled on Shannon's behalf and said that the poster could be displayed as long as she added one more line on the top in big letters, which was Miss Shannon's Christmas message. And the school board agreed to support the decision as it says it was more in line with their policy. And she was able to put the display back up on last Friday, which happened to be uh, the last day of school for the semester for that school district. Um, The Paxton commented, neither faculty nor students shed their constitutional rights when they step inside the schoolhouse door. The law, in fact, encourages school districts to take an inclusive approach to religious and secular celebrations that are both respectful and accepting of different viewpoints. Religious discrimination towards Christians has become a holiday tradition of sorts among certain groups. I'm glad to see that the court broke through and recognized that a commitment to diversity means protecting everyone's individual religious expression. So, I trust all of you have seen uh, Charlie Brown Christmas, the cartoon. Uh, if not, I mean, it's a classic. You're missing out. Go rent it. Go watch it on YouTube. It's, it's short and, and it's, yeah, it's, it's great. Um, interestingly enough, uh, when Charles, when it was first shown, uh, a Charlie Brown Christmas was actually expected to be a disaster. Uh, even Charles Schultz, who, you know, was the uh, creator of Peanuts, admitted that he was probably the only person who could have gotten a Charlie Brown Christmas made uh, due to his popularity. He said television executives hated it. It was criticized as being too religious. The executive producer, Lee Mendelssohn, uh, and uh, Phil Melendez, the lead animator, they had a discussion with, with Charles Schultz, in particular over Schultz's insistence of including this New Testament scripture reading in the, in the cartoon. Mendelssohn and Melendez both voiced their concern about the reading, with Melendez telling Schultz, 
It's very dangerous for us to start talking about religion now. Shalta answered him by saying, Bill, if we don't, who will? You know, in our society today, you know, many people will like to keep talk about God out of Christmas, uh, in our politi- being politically correct, afraid of people being offended. But we're going to see from our passage this morning that one way or the other, God is, is going to be in the picture. You know, during the Christmas season, we're reminded of many verses which relate to the birth of Jesus. You know, you just heard in our scripture reading this morning, Emily read the prophetic one in Isaiah 9. And there's also uh, the other uh, very popular one in Isaiah 7. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. You come across these verses, you know, quite often during the Advent season, but they're usually just read in standalone, as standalone verses. So I thought it would be you know, very good and important to go read these chapters to fully understand the context of you know, when they were said, why they were written, so we can get a better understanding of the proper meaning of these verses. So to, so to start, the, the events described in this, these chapters take place around 735 B.C., Israel at the time was divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. Isaiah, in his book, is addressing the southern kingdom. And we're going to see that it's a very somber situation for them. If you have your Bible still open, uh, flip it back uh, a couple chapters to chapter 7 and and keep them open because we're going to be referencing these chapters a lot. Look at the first two verses of Isaiah chapter 7. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, marched up the fight against Jerusalem, which was in Judah, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David, which was Judah, was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, which was Israel. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. So we first learned from this passage that King Ahaz was king of Judah at the time. Jotham was his father and Uzziah was his grandfather. And as described in 2 Kings, Jotham and Uzziah were actually pretty good kings. They were quoted as doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But not so much for Ahaz. In 2 Kings 16, he was described as a wicked, wicked king, even sacrificed his son to a pagan god. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and led the people astray to worship false gods. In Isaiah 7, in these two verses, we also learned that the countries of Aram and Israel were coming to attack Judah. And it says in verse 2, Ahaz and the people were afraid. We're not sure why Aram and Israel decided to attack Judah. It's possible that they wanted Judah to join an alliance with them, but we don't know for certain. We're told in verses 5 to 6 that they wanted to depose of Ahaz and replace him with someone else. Verse 5 says, Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your room, saying, Let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves, and make the son of Tabeel king over it. 
sin. So once again, you know, it was a pretty sad situation for Ahaz in Judah. But God sends the prophet Isaiah to deliver a message through Ahaz. Verses 7 to 9. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramaya's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand firm at all. So God's basically telling Ahaz, you know, don't doubt. They're not going to be victorious. Trust me, they're not going to conquer Judah. And that would be good news for Ahaz, right? <coughs> Ahaz, after hearing this, you know, should have thanked God and, and trusted him. But God knows that Ahaz still doubted. So to further show his graciousness towards Ahaz and Judah, he tells Ahaz in verse 11, Ask me for a sign. Ask me for anything you want. As high as the heavens, as deep as the oceans, just ask me for a sign. You know, he's, he's basically reassuring Ahaz. Be daring. You don't think what I'm saying is true? Go ahead and ask for anything, and I'll show you that what I'm saying is true. And what was Ahaz's response? You can see it in verse 12. I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now on the surface, this may seem like a very noble you know, response. The correct one, you know, that should have been given. But it was actually the wrong response. And you may wonder, you know, why is this the wrong response? Because didn't, when Jesus, when he was tempted in the wilderness, right, he told Satan, you shall not put God to the test. So it seems that Ahaz was kind of doing what was right. But yet it was the wrong response. And why was that? The reason is that when it says in Deuteronomy, do not put God to the test, and this is what Jesus was quoting from when he was being tempted in the wilderness. The issue back then in Deuteronomy was that the Israelites doubted God's goodness and demanded, demanded that he produce a sign. You know, they were saying, you know, we don't think you're good to us, we don't think you're faithful to us, you led us out of Egypt to be killed. Give us a sign that shows that you're good to us. Here in Isaiah, God is commanding Ahaz to ask for a sign as a step of faith and obedience to the Lord. So in this case, to not ask for a sign would be disobedience. Back in Deuteronomy, the Israelites said, okay, if you want us to obey you, give us a sign to show us you're good. Here in Isaiah, God's saying, ask me for a sign. Be obedient to ask me for one. And I'll show you that what I'm saying is true. But even still, Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign because he lacks the faith in God that God would do what he says. Now know that Ahaz already has in mind what he's going to do. Back in 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 16, we learned that Ahaz sent a gift to, uh, his name was tiglath Pileser. And he was the king of Assyria at the time, who in Assyria, you have to understand, was the dominant force at the time. 
And he didn't just send any gift to him. It says, Ahaz took the silver and gold out of the treasury, out of the temple of the Lord in his own palace, and he sent that as a gift to Pelesar. And in giving the gift, the messengers were to say to this king, on behalf of Ahaz, I am your servant and vassal. Come up and save me out of the king of Aram and of the king of Israel who are attacking me. So instead of trusting the Lord, he aligned himself with Assyria, who was basically the bully country at that time, and asked him to protect Judah. So God is, is clearly getting frustrated with Ahaz, as it describes in verse 13 of back in Isaiah 7. But in his ultimate mercy, he continues to pursue Ahaz. He tells him in verse 14, If you're not going to ask for a sign, I'm going to give you one. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and the right and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. So you read this and like, what, what is he talking about? So in reading this passage in context, understand that this passage has a double fulfillment. One for Ahaz's time, and then one for the time when Jesus came. For Ahaz's time, Isaiah is saying that a child is going to be conceived and is going to be assigned to Ahaz. Ahaz has chosen to align himself with the king of Assyria. And as a result, before this child is old enough to know right from wrong, Aram and Israel will be decimated. But consequences will come when you call on your worst enemy for help. And just like Stalin found out, sorry, just like Stalin found this out when he chose to align himself with uh, Nazi Germany and uh, sign a non-aggression pact with them, but then Germany turned on Russia and attacked them. So the excuse me, so the Assyrians returned on Judah, and as a result, like it says in um, 7:14. When the child is old enough to know right from wrong, traditionally about age 12, the boy will be eating curds and honey. And what's being said here is that Judah will be so decimated that those who survive will have to scrounge for wild honey for food. And even though a few wild goats and cattle will remain, there'll be so few people remaining that they can eat the curds produced by the few cattle and goats that that can give milk. So I don't want to get into this too deeply. We don't have time, but at the beginning of Isaiah 8, Isaiah did have a child. Assyria did indeed defeat Aram, killing her king, and and Assyria then conquered Israel. In 722 BC, all Israel was sent to exile by the Assyrians. But then, What was said in 714 was true. Assyria turned on Judah when Ahaz's son was king and conquered Judah. 
He took all the wall Judah had remaining, even having the gold strip from the doors and doorposts of the temple. So they just, you know, looted and decimated Judah. And so like it says, the few who survived had to scrounge for wild honey and curds. And so the first fulfillment of the sign was not a positive one for Judah. God was with them, Emmanuel. But they had chosen to leave God out of the equation. Because Ahaz, Ahaz trusted in Assyria instead of the God who was with them, they would discover that God would bring against them the very thing that they trusted in. That's what the first part of Isaiah 8 talks about. You can see it in verses 6 to 7. Because this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh, which were symbolizing the Lord, and rejoices over Rezin and the son of Ramalia, therefore the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty flood waters of the river, the king of Assyria with all his power, who will overflow all its channels, run over all its bands, and sweep into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it and reaching up to the neck. Its outspring wings will cover the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel, or God with us. This is what happens when the king of Judah, Ahaz, chooses to ignore or go against Emmanuel, the God who was with them. But then God does something totally amazing. At the beginning of the passage that Emily read earlier, he tells Isaiah that even though the situation looks bleak, even though Judah is suffering the consequences of turning its back on the Lord, there's hope. Verse 12, do not call conspiracy what these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. Why? Because he's going to do something even greater. He's going to bring salvation. And this is what we get into in chapter 9 of verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, which, by the way, were the first towns that Assyria conquered when they came to invade Judah. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. How? The second messianic prophecy, right in verse 6. For to us the child is born, to us the son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The second fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14 and the fulfillment of Isaiah 9 is found in Jesus. Jesus, as we know, is born of a virgin, and Mary was told in Matthew 1 that he will be called Emmanuel. Do you know where most of Jesus' ministry took place? Galilee. This is the area where he turned water into wine, he gave the Sermon on the Mount, he fed the 5,000, he performed other healing miracles. I mean, he was indeed the fulfillment of Isaiah 9. And it's interesting, I don't know if your Bibles have it, but my version has, uh, my version only has Galilee, but in other versions it has Galilee of the Gentiles. Meaning that the, the salvation was not just to be for the Jews. But Jesus' ministry would take place among the Gentiles. So though he came the first time to suffer and die on a cross, 
Isaiah 9 promises that Jesus will return to establish a government of peace of which there will be no end. I like what verse 5 says, Every warrior's brute used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. What it means is that we will no longer need these things because there will be no more war. You won't need warrior's boots. You won't need army fatigues. And you know, when we read about things like what's going on in Aleppo, in Syria, with, with the suffering take place, taking place, with innocent people being killed, um, as they try, I just was seeing in the news, like innocent people trying to go to safe havens or like getting shot in the process of trying to go to the safe havens. You know, we, we just like long for a time where this will not happen anymore. Well, there will be no war. There will be peace and healing. And by the way, just Aram in our passage is now modern day Syria. You know, in spite of the fact that the people turn their backs on God, despite the people choosing to worship other gods and calling on human aid instead of God, God, out of his graciousness and mercy, chooses to send his Son so that his people might receive salvation. And it's only because of God's love and grace, nothing on our part, that causes this to happen, which is why verse 7 in chapter 9 ends, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Purely out of his own initiative, nothing that we do. So as I wrap up real quickly, and I I hope it just, I know we went through these two chapters kind of quick, but I hope you have a better idea of these verses, you know, and and the context of that, and, 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 and why the context is important, since you know, these verses come up a lot at Christmas. But, but more importantly, I want you to understand that Emmanuel, God with us, has a double meaning. As we normally choose to understand it, you know, it's a sign of encouragement and peace for us, knowing that God Almighty is with us. He can turn our darkness into light. He can turn despair into joy. But Emmanuel, as we also saw, can have a negative sense. For as we saw with Ahaz, God is with us whether we want to acknowledge him or not. For those who might be offended by a you know, Christmas display containing Bible verses, for those who choose not to believe in him, it still doesn't take away from the fact that he is Emmanuel, the God with us. He is going to either be the cornerstone of our life, or as it says in Isaiah 8, verse 14, He will be a stone that will cause men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And you know, when he's left out of life, life doesn't work right. You know, relationships don't work. Work doesn't work as it was meant to. You know, that's the point of Genesis 3. Life was made to function with God at the core of it. But when he was taken out of it, things don't function properly. Things become more difficult. And God becomes the stumbling block that people just keep falling over, tripping over. You know, many people are still anxious about what the future will hold. They see all these terrible atrocities happening around the world and wondering when they will end. Here in the U.S., people wonder what our incoming administration will bring. But no matter who or what it is, 
you know, if people put their hope in people or things, they will be let down. Because we're asking for these people or things to do things that they were never designed to do. It's only when God is at the center that things work properly. And for those of you here who may have not made a commitment to Christ yet, that's what you must consider. Is God, the God who is with us, what do you do with him? And for those who are Christ followers, two things we can do. First, we can long for and pray for this Prince of Peace to return and establish his kingdom. Where he will, as it says in Isaiah 9, uphold it with justice and righteousness forever. And the second thing we can do is tell others about this Emmanuel, the God with us. Because whether they realize it or not, he will either be their cornerstone or their stumbling block. And as Charles Schultz says, you know, if we don't do it, who will? So I pray that this holiday, as we reflect upon this virgin who gave birth to his son, Jesus, and this child who is called Emmanuel, God with us, we will understand the implications that it has for our lives and respond accordingly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that out of your zeal, out of your great love for us, you sent your son Jesus to be born of a virgin, to humble himself and become a man, as we've been seeing in the Philippians series, and to be obedient, obedient to even death and a cross. And we thank you that because of that, we can be reconciled in our relationship with you. We can receive salvation. And Lord, we do long for the time when you will come again to bring about a kingdom of peace because you are the Prince of Peace. We pray, Lord, that you will come and reign and restore your rule. And for us as your followers, Lord, until that time comes, may we pray expectantly for that and may we share the good news of Emmanuel, the God with us, to others who may not know you yet. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.